Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup. We're coming to you live from our Athletic Sports Group studios here in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm Rick Goff. I'm your host for tonight, and I'm joined by Matt Roberts, president of Baseball Youth, which is another athletic sports group product, and former UNC Asheville baseball player. Long time ago. Long, long time ago, Rick. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us tonight, man. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Time to talk some ball. Yeah, so we're going to change up things a little bit tonight. We're... Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit of uh, college stuff tonight and what to expect from from kids that are going to get into college. And uh, this pertains to the youth. We're pr- primarily a, uh, a youth-driven show here, but we will touch base on some things as college baseball, high school baseball, and even and dive into a little bit of uh, uh, professional baseball when is warranted. So uh, we're going to get rolling on that tonight. But before we, we start, there's something that I, I want to talk about. <clears throat> Did you get a chance to see, over the weekend, the shortstop from the New York Mets have a 22-pitch at bat? Didn't see it. Read about it. Saw the sequence of pitches. 22-pitch at bat. That's every coach's dream, right? To go up there and, and battle 22 pitches. Unless you're the coach of the pitcher. Unless you're the pitching coach. Right. Then you're about ready to pull your hair out. Right. So to give you guys a little bit of background that might not have seen what happened over the weekend, the shortstop for the Mets, Luis Gilmore, um, fell behind in a game 0-2 to Jordan Hicks. Mm-hmm. Now, Jordan Hicks is no slouch. Mm-hmm. He is probably going to be the closer for the Cardinals. Throws well over 100 miles an hour. Again, the context. He was down 0-2. 0-2. He's down 0-2. He's down 0-2. He battled off 19, I'm sorry, fouled off 16 pitches, including nine straight at one point. You know, there's, and talk more about college baseball, and, and we're talking about professional baseball now, the art of staying alive. And one thing I personally could never do was intentionally foul off a pitch. I was not good enough to do that. These guys at the pro level who can foul off, and, and some of those probably unintentional, but some of them, you know, borderline corner pitches, I, I need to get rid of this down a line. I need to flip this back. It's, it's a really incredible skill that some of these guys can, can display. Not to mention, let me, let me say this again, because Jordan Hicks, who throws well over 100 miles an hour. Now, that means if he's throwing his slider, his curveball, you're talking 15 mile an hour different. How? Oh. 80s off speed pitches. Right. You played baseball at UNC. What's the most pitches you fouled off in at bat? Well, I can tell you the most number of pitches I didn't foul off in at bat. <laughs> uh, Andrew Walker, who played for the Red Sox, Marlins, left handed, tall, lanky. He was a freshman at, at Chapel Hill when I was a senior at Asheville, and we went to play at Chapel Hill midweek. Uh, I, I only struck out more than once in a game one time. Andrew Walker got me twice in Chapel Hill that day, and I don't think I saw more than seven pitches. So I went down two Ks, backwards Ks, by the way, and we got 22, 22 pitches here. Some would say that Andrew was was effective that day. Seven pitches, two strikeouts. I think Andrew's bank account would say he was <laughs> effective that day and many days afterwards, yes. So, folks, if, if you haven't had the chance, do yourself a favor. Check out the video uh, from this weekend. 
Luis Gilmore, the shortstop for the Mets. It is just something to behold. And it's something rather unbelievable. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I, I wouldn't believe it. And there's a coaching lesson in there too. You know, there's a lot of coaches who watch this show, a lot of coaches you talk to on a daily sure. basis. Uh, and if you go back and watch the video, you can you can sort of make clear in your own mind his approach. And as we know, um, success at the plate is very much about mindset and approach. Yeah, that's true. And speaking of approach, let's uh, let's kick off the show tonight. We're going to talk about a couple of teams at the youth level that had had good weekends uh, this past weekend in different events across the country. Uh, the first one is our 10U ranked TBS team. I'm sorry. 10U number 12 TBS ranked team out of out of California, the San Diego Stars. They played this weekend. They went six and zero. They outscored their opponents sixty four to fourteen, and they run ruled four of their six opponents on their way to the championship. Uh, that's an impressive impressive weekend for the Stars. They made so, short work of the tournament. So last year's number twelve ranked 10U. This year playing eleven U, of course. Nope, nope, just the opposite. Got it. We we uh, we released our preseason rankings last Monday night. Um, I think you were out in Colorado, might have been skiing at the time, so I can understand why you missed Nevada, it. Nevada, I think, yes. Or Nevada, I'm sorry, that's right. Yeah, you guys were in Reno. But uh, so it would be this year's uh, number 12 10U preseason ranked team, the San Diego Stars. The other team that we want to give a shout out to is our number eight 12 year old team, the SBA Futures out of North Carolina, Matthews, North Carolina. They went 5 0 this past weekend, outscoring their opponents 40 to 8. And they were unruled three of their five opponents. But the big one in this one, Matt, was the championship game. They faced off against the number two TBS-ranked team, the Texas Florida Canes out of uh, the Miami, Florida area. That game went extra innings, and SBA came out on top six to five. So uh, sounds like it was a very exciting game. I spoke to the coach uh, from SBA a little bit earlier today. And uh, he had told me that uh, there was roughly 300 people that were there watching a 12-year-old youth baseball game. That's fantastic. So, so on your end, as you are, it's, it's mid-March. It's not even mid-May, certainly not mid-July. Sure, early. How are you already taking into account some of these results, especially when they're top 25 versus top 25 in preseason rankings? And are you logging them somewhere? Is this a, is this, I'm keeping this in the back of my head. I remember this matchup. Yeah. Are you already sort of mentally moving people around according to results, even this early in the season? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we do our rankings three times a year. We do a preseason, we do a mid season, and then we'll do a final. And at the youth level, it's unlike college and pro to where sometimes these youth teams, they might take a week off because the parents are tired of traveling. The kids get tired. So they take a couple of weeks off. So early on, years and years and years ago, we used to try to update them uh, weekly. Then mm-hmm. we changed it to monthly. And then we quickly realized that, you know, not everybody plays the same type of schedule. So we backed it off. We do it three times a year. And we do keep note of what happens during the course of a year, especially in a game like this. And if we forget, trust me, the, the folks from SBA remind will, remind, <laughs> will remind me very quickly about the game that happened back in but March. But you also noted in that matchup, which I think is unique and, and, and worth pointing out, Canes went north to play sure. this early. Yeah. So props to them for taking the road trip. Absolutely. Not all teams would do that out of sunny Miami. And Yeah, and, and one of the things that we – one of the criteria in our rankings is the willingness for teams to travel. It's like home and away games. Yeah, yeah. We, we reward the teams that, that are looking to go out there and travel and do that type of things. So even though the Canes came up short by one run, I mean, listen, let's face it, they were preseason number two. 
SBA's preseason number eight, you know, we're not talking about two slouches here. So there's no shame, definitely, in, in losing to the number eight team in one run, or I'm sorry, by one run in extra innings. Right. And, so they'll actually get more credit for that loss sure. than they will probably for most of their wins. I- ironic we're talking about this the week of the men's, women's basketball, NCAA basketball tournament starting. And, and we know there's always conversation around quality wins, whether it's at home or on the road. So do you ever see the rankings getting to the point where, and this would be fascinating, I know a lot of folks out there would love it, you talked about doing it weekly. What if there was a RPI system, a numerical system, a, 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 an algorithmic system to where that road game for the Canes actually wouldn't penalize them for whatever reason, or, or maybe it would, but only slightly. That'd be really neat to have that sort of system in place for all of youth baseball at certain levels. You're trying to make my job tougher, aren't you? I'm just thinking here. I'm just thinking outside the box. <laughs> thinking here. outside the box. Well, listen, as all you guys out there know, I'm forever whatever makes the, the youth baseball game better. And if that comes to that aspect where it makes the game better and, and the participation and, the, and the, uh, the interaction better, I'm all for it. You know, I'm, I'm all for about making the youth game more enjoyable and uh, a fun experience for everyone involved. Yeah, again, again credit, I think. Uh, partial credit there goes to the folks from Florida traveling up to North Carolina for this early season tournament when the weather certainly isn't the same as it is in South Florida. So I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. So kudos to those guys. But uh, let's get on to our our first topic. Oh, before we get started, folks, I want to remind you that uh, we are taking nominations for our top 10 plays that we're going to do once a month. So if you guys have captured uh, a top play, a home run, uh, email us, please. Email us at the lineup at athletics.com. We're going to put the number and the email address up for you. If you have any comments during the show, you can uh, text us on the ticket text hotline. You can text us at 915-228-2785. And uh, we'll be happy to discuss anything that you guys want to talk about here. Uh, but for now, we're going to go from youth rankings. We're going to go into college baseball rankings and um, the the college top 10 has come out recently, and uh, we're going to put that up on the screen for you here real quick. And uh, Matt, let, let's talk a little bit about the top 10 and and what you see as a glaring, uh, something that stands out glaring as far as that top 10 goes. Right. So from top 10 plays to the top 10 in college baseball, as of today, D1 Baseball came out with new rankings after results through the weekend, and, and it's, it's really pretty clear, right? This is an SEC world, once again, in college baseball. Not surprising, but five, the top five spots, Rick, all occupied by SEC programs. Um, SEC's obviously won seven of the last 10 national championships, excuse me, six of the last 10 national championships, six of the last 10 runner-up finishes as well, stretching back to 2009. Arkansas is in at number one. They went down to Ruston, Louisiana. Again, talking road trips. Here's a team out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, Going south, but Ruston and Louisiana Tech's got a brand-new ballpark, a good club under Lane, Bear, uh, Lane Burroughs. Arkansas won two out of three, really close game Friday night. They looked good on Saturday, lost the Sunday uh, game. They're 12-1. and one. That was their first loss of the season. They remain number one. Vandy, we're going to talk more about Vandy later, 12-2. and two. They went out to Stillwater and Oklahoma State, won two or three. Mississippi State now 13-3. They swept Eastern Michigan at home. Their arch-rival Ole Miss ended number four in the poll. Also at 13 and 3, won two out of three against Louisiana Monroe at home. And then the Gators of Florida beat Jacksonville two out of three at home. They are 13 and four. So 
one of the main storylines here that's hard to miss, SEC in all top five spots. I'm not sure I've ever seen one league hold that many top spots in the same poll. Pretty impressive by the SEC. I, on the other token, you know, from the ACC, Louisville's still in the top ten. They beat, um, or they swept Boston College here in Louisville uh, this past weekend. But there's some interesting names in the top 25 beyond the top ten from an ACC standpoint that I find sort of interesting. Still early season, long way to go. Notre Dame's at 15. Uh, excuse me, Notre Dame's at 17. Pitt's at 18. Boston College is at 24, and Virginia Tech's at 25. Who are we missing there? No NC State no right NC now. No NC State. No North Carolina. No Clemson. No Virginia. No Virginia. No Florida State. Right, so it's early. We got a long way to go in the college baseball season. Still, what two months? More than two months to go. Early storylines. SEC the top. Some interesting new ACC teams kind of filling in the top twenty-five. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here. You said uh, in, in your recap there, Mississippi State just took two. Did you say two or three? Or they swept, take all three. They swept Eastern Michigan. Eastern Michigan. Right. right. And I'm going to guess that game was not in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Right? Was that Starkville? Was that Starkville? Starkville yeah. with the Cowbells, the new Duty Noble. <laughs> Uh, I think, and I, I, I could pull it back up, but I'm pretty sure in three games, cumulative score was like 22 to four. Uh, a lot of one-run games there for the Eagles. Mississippi State and the Chris Lamonis, who used to be in our neck of the woods. He was an assistant here at Louisville. Then he was the head coach at Indiana. He's been now at Mississippi State. If this might be his third, or however we're counting last year, maybe it's just three and a half seasons in Starkville. Always a terrific program, and um, the SEC race is going to be one worth following once again. Well, that, that brings me up to the next point then here. what What's a team to watch? I mean, we just saw the list. It's got the five top SEC teams. I mean, only one can stand at the end. So who's who's the one to watch? So I'm going to go off the board from an SEC standpoint because we're going to talk, or we could talk this entire kind of program about SEC baseball. But ECU's in the top ten. So a lot of people go East Carolina. East Carolina has been a fantastic baseball program for decades. It started under Keith LeClaire. Randy Mazie, who's now at West Virginia, was there for a stretch. They had some 50-win seasons. Cliff Godwin is their head coach at this point in time. I think they're in at number nine. Um, if you've ever been to a game at the Jungle in Greenville, North Carolina, and if you've ever played outfield in the Jungle, those fans are passionate now. They may know every one of your family members' names real quickly. They've done their research. So I think ECU is a fun team to watch, primarily because it's outside of the traditional power conferences. And the yeah. American Athletics is a great baseball conference, but it's not the SEC. It's not the ACC. It may be an ACC, SEC country. So I'm going to go with ECU for a team to watch kind of long term. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the uh, non-high major brand stories. You know, Coastal Carolina being the preeminent example of that back in 16 when they won the national championship. So ECU to me is a team to watch. Now, I'm, I'm probably going to uh, tick off some Clemson fans with my next statement here. But do you see the and East Carolina being the product of their conference? Maybe not such a strong conference like Clemson faces in football. You've got the SEC in baseball. Those guys have got to play each other eventually, right? So the chances of them finishing the season at one through five is pretty minute, right? Am I right? I mean it's possible. Sure. So so you get you get somebody that, that's in a conference that's not as tough as the ACC. You know, again I'm gonna to refer to Clemson and football. And then how does that relate when it comes to the baseball landscape? Well, let's just circle back on the youth baseball rankings that we started this show talking about. You know, Kendall Rogers and Aaron Fitt at D1 Baseball, who do a terrific job covering the sport, but lead their rankings effort as well. They're asking themselves the same questions, right? Because 
ECU is going to be playing the likes of Tulane and Cincinnati and, and, and UCF and USF and the American Athletic Conference. Sure. And, and maybe, by and large, their road throughout the conference season won't be as tough as Arkansas, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, LSU, who's in the top 25, not in the top 10 right now, South Carolina, who had a wonderful start this season, not to mention Kentucky, Missouri, who are resurging a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it's all, it's all a matter of overall – you know, we like to hear this term in college basketball season, body of work, but it's real, right? I mean, sure. who you've played, where you've played them, who you beat, all that stuff matters. So the folks doing rankings in college baseball space, whether it's RPI-related or subjective, like Kendall and Aaron, I think goes directly to the question we asked earlier. How you're going to judge the team who went from Miami up to North Carolina and might have lost a one-run extra inning game in the final. Yeah, point. It's the same context. Yeah, a good point. All right, well, what about a sleeper? What about somebody that's under the radar here and nobody's thinking of in, in March that we really need to keep an eye on? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of uh, teams in the Southern Conference that I'm a fan of. And, and you mentioned earlier I played at UNC Asheville, which is the Big South. And the Southern Conference and the Big South traditionally have been like rival conferences. Uh, Wofford, which had a wonderful men's basketball squad a couple of years oh, yeah, ago. Sure. And uh, almost beat Kentucky in a, in a second-round game. Should have beat them. Should have beat them, right? They were a wonderful three-point shooting team. Uh, Wofford's led by a guy named Todd Interdonato, and this is a team that steals a ton of bases. I think they're in the top five nationally right now in stolen bases. As a former speed guy, I love that. So so Wofford and Samford down in Birmingham by the SOCOM, I think are two fun teams to watch. Teams that – if they win their conference tournament, if you win the SoCon conference tournament, you're going to be like a three seed in a regional. I don't think a four, but pro- probably a three. And they've got a couple arms that can really give a one or two seed a lot of problems. So sleepers, teams that I personally am watching, I think could make some noise long term. Wofford and Samford would be my two teams. All right, let's let's change gears a little bit and and kind of relate this back to youth baseball, this college connection to youth baseball, and. If you're a kid coming up from from the youth baseball world, what is driving you or what drove you to make your college decision? I mean, you know, these kids are 13, 14, 15 years old, and, and they're having to look ahead to colleges and what they're going to do. Do you, do you go to the college for its location, you know, being in the south or sunshine or warmer weather? Do you go for the coach? Do you go for an opportunity? I mean, what what comes into that process and that thought process? I think the first thing that's important to note is it's an individual decision for each student athlete and each family, right? All of the um, opportunities and the ingredients that go into those decisions. Of course, the type of education you're getting at a particular institution, what you can major in, not every school has the same major, of course, that's vital as as everybody out there knows a minute percent of college baseball players going to end up playing professional ball yeah, yeah but do you do you think that that really goes into the the kid's selection of a college is the major i mean do you think there's a reason vanderbilt continues to be highly rated it's not just Tim Corbin. well we're going to get into that in a minute right but that vanderbilt we're, education we're going to see vanderbilt on a resume that ain't bad well, I'm sure there's 50 and, Stan- and Stanford and, 50 du- and Duke's up and coming and Tulane historically has been terrific. Yeah, but I think education is 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 crucial. But sure, your relationship with a coach and a coaching staff, their track record on developing talent, not just macro developing talent. What about your position, right? What Vandy? What's Vandy known for? Arms. If you're an arm, okay, they develop talent. Louisville, Roger Williams, Dan McDonald. Develop arms, so okay, certainly but, an ingredient as well. But if, if 
most of the colleges across the country offer the same majors, right? But some are better than others, for sure. But how is that possible? If I've got a marketing degree, I've got a marketing degree. Because if you've got a marketing degree from, you know, Kellogg at Northwestern, that's got different uh, marketplace value than a marketing degree from UT Arlington. Nothing against UT Arlington, no, no, of no. course, but there's certain business schools, of course, that are more highly ranked than others around the nation, as an example. Well, you know, I, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around, you know, that whole thing. Um, but we'll move on to the next but question. But you're, you're a Michigan guy, Rick. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm from Michigan. But you understand the value. So if I asked you, coming from the state of Michigan, what's the value of a degree from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor? And again, no offense, well, I would West, say, Western I, Michigan. I, I would argue that the degree from Michigan is not worth very much. <laughs> All right, take, take, off, <laughs> take off your fandom hat. And be able, you, you, you see my point, right? I mean, so that, that type of thing has to be considered. The, the degree from Michigan helps you say, do you like fries with that, sir? No, it doesn't. I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch heck from all my... You know, the Ohio State University there you know, go. Now versus, we're versus, no offense to Toledo, but an OSU degree versus a Toledo degree, right? They, they have differences in the marketplace. Well, all right, then let me ask you this next question. Will kids give up playing time, potential playing time, to go play for one of those big-time programs? Or will they have their ego step in? If I can't start as a freshman, then I'm going to go play for, insert school here, sure. because I might be able to play for four years. I'm sure that happens. Sure. But what's the pros and cons of both? Well, the, the con is not being realistic with your abilities and not being open, in some cases, to improvement and coaching and understanding that at a place like, again, let's just use here at UofL at Louisville, they've got so many arms. You may be the 11th arm at Louisville and you you may only throw 12 innings this season. But had you gone to, just picking a school, Purdue, you might be the third arm, right? Right. And you might throw 45, 65 innings this year. But the tutelage, who are you learning from, right? What's your arm care like? What's, what's the back end support like? All those things have to be weighed. Yeah, but don't you think at a big-time D1 school, I mean, is there really that much difference? I think there is, and I think that uh, every program out there can put a, a portfolio, and, and these days it's not in-person recruiting right now, so they're you know, Adobe sparking websites together and doing Zooms with prospective student-athletes and showing them track records of guys who came in you know, throwing high 80s and they leave throwing high 90s, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I buy that, Matt. I, I buy it into, if, if you're talking comparing D1 to your, your local community college, I buy that 100%. But D1 to D1, man, I, I just have a hard time. I have a hard time buying it. Um, Not every D1's made the same. Yeah, and, and I get that. So that actually brings me to the next point, is, is the social media influence that, that teams – and organizations have on the youth, right? And this this is a, a topic that I, I, I'm kind of passionate about because to me, it seems like the social media giant out there right now has been more prevalent now, we'll say in the last, what, 10 years? Decade, yeah, that's fair. Last, yeah. last decade, right? Yeah. So if you're in the high point of being a big dog, so to speak, your Vanderbilt, your South Carolinas, your SEC schools, 
with all that social media stuff that is driven to the youth down to my level here, I mean, kids constantly see on their Instagram, they see on their Twitter, uh, Facebook, if they have it or whatever, they're constantly being shoved with Vanderbilt and all these other schools. How, how do you think that anybody else can compete with that? I mean, it kind of feeds itself. It's a giant feeding itself. So, you know, do you ever see a change in the big dogs with the way that social media is played and, and, and the media is played out? Does, do, do the little guys have a chance? I think I'm going to move back a step before I answer that question specifically. And, and over the last decade, the growth of the game, the game of college baseball is also pretty notable. And it's a, it's a byproduct of, you know, the SEC network, the ACC network now sure. being out there, the Pac-12 network, the Big Ten network. You know, these secondary broadcasters that support the ESPN family of networks, or in, or in the Big Ten case, it's Fox, that opened up a lot more programming opportunities for sports like baseball. So there's simply more baseball on TV or being streamed if you don't have traditional cable than there was 10 years ago. So as a, as a, as a V as a product and as a brand college baseball continues to, to be on the rise. Yeah, but let's be fair. I mean, let's be honest, I guess I should say the ACC network, the bid. It's the haves. They're, it's the haves. They're, they're secondary. They're, they're the networks themselves. Sure. They're, yeah. they're secondary markets of, of the way to get the baseball. So, if, if I was to turn a game in, when it gets down to the College World Series time, it's on CBS, on primetime TV, national TV, and it's the, the Vanderbilts, the South Carolinas that are constantly in that spotlight year in and year out. And again, you have your one-offs. We talked about Coastal Carolina. Sure. Um, you know, but that's, that's a, a kind of a one-year pro. And listen, those will happen no matter what you do. They'll happen all the time. But what I'm talking about is constantly year in and year out, these kids that are coming to, to TBS events, they're, they're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. If you go to any tournament and ask a team of 12, who's your favorite college team? That, that maybe not their local team, we understand the local flavor, but outside of their yeah. local team, I, I bet you yep. half of them are gonna say Vanderbilt. I think you're right. But I would offer too, 15 years ago, Vanderbilt baseball wasn't even on the map. But you're making my point for me. That's back before social media took place. Vanderbilt got hot at the right time. It got hot in the social media. It hired media. the right guy at the right time. Well, Tim's doing a great job over there. But my, my point is they got hot during the right time at the hype of social media. So now all of these kids are hyping Vandy for them. It's not really nothing that Vandy's doing. These kids are all doing it. So when one of these com kids commit to Vandy, a five-star, I don't you know, a top recruit that commits to Vandy. Sure, we got a 14-year-old Noel Lafon out of Ohio who played for baseball youth at some events, committed to Vandy already. He's a 14-year-old. So when that happens, again, it, the monster feeds itself. Now the other kids that are at that level, well, I'm going to go to Vandy. I'm going to go to Vandy. Right. And, and so uh, what you're describing is a flywheel for Vanderbilt. It just feeds itself. It feeds you, itself. You, you noted that. And I'm not talking about just Vandy. I'm talking about it. There's other programs in that same echelon, 10, 12 that same tier. programs. Yeah, yeah. That same tier. First off, there's only so many spots on a baseball team. And, and you know, some people out there are going to go like, yeah, well, Vanderbilt can stack scholarships so they got more money. Than... Whatever. That's there's, a whole other topic. There, exactly. That's but a whole other topic. There's only so many roster spots. So it, your question to me initially was, will the big dogs remain the big dogs? And sure, there are inherent advantages at some programs – whether it's geographic based, you know, leadership and and program direction, what conference are they playing? Access to national television and or exposure opportunities. 
level of competition, there are programs out there that have inherent benefits. And let's be honest, some of them are these SEC schools we are talking about. However, new coaches come and go. That matters. I get that. Right? And, and beyond just new coaches, and, and we're talking about the social media world we all live in, but specifically teenagers live in, who is creating the content for these programs? Those people come and go. Right? That's an evolving uh, profession and industry. So that's going to matter. And, and, and you'd be silly to think that there aren't some professionals out there who help direct the content that these programs make on social. And like any profession, there's some who are better than others. So do I think there are some programs who will always have advantages to be one of the haves? I mean, truly at the top of the, uh, of the totem pole? Absolutely. Do I think there are programs like the University of Louisville who 15 years ago, well, let's see, that would have been 2006. Dan didn't get here until, you know, Louisville, generally a cold weather destination or cold weather location. Um, you got to win too, man. Like, you got to win. win games. You, you, gotta you just got to win games. Well, and that's, man, that's coaching. It's a lot easier to win when the better players are going to your program. And you've built that flywheel for sure. So, All right. Then just a straight yes or no question. Do you think social media helps keep those guys at the top? Yes. Driven by the youth. Not necessarily themselves, but driven by the youth. Yes. Yeah, I agree. We'd be I, ignorant to say otherwise. I, I Absolutely. I keep some Absolutely. For sure. You know, I got a question to go back to what we were talking about earlier a little bit. And, and I want to dig in on social youth more because name, image, and likeness is coming. And that's going to filter down to high school kids and, and teenagers. As you look at the youth space, and let's take the TBS Nationals, for example. And, and we talked about once you get to the CWS, national television, ESPN, ESPN2 every single night. It's a two-week event, basically, a week-and-a-half event. You know, what are some components of the College World Series structure and or the postseason structure in college baseball that you think could filter to youth baseball? And, and, and specifically what interests me most is that, that best-of-three final stanza of the CWS. Like, could that apply to youth baseball for us at some point? Well, it, it's been talked about. Different formats have been talked about for youth baseball for some time. And the, the timing of everything makes it very, very difficult. And the roster size makes it very, very difficult. Most youth teams carry, you know, 11, 12. The college guy has a bunch of POs. They've got a bunch of POs. You know, those pitchers can throw. Now, the, 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 the fielders, well, yeah, they can play every day, three, four, five days in a row. It's the pitching aspect that makes it that much harder for the youth to adopt that type of format, especially the best two out of three. Because by the time you get to the end of the tournament, you've already played anywhere between five and eight games if you're yeah. talking about a week-long tournament. So to add three more games in there, yeah. it just makes it really tough to do with the roster size and to do with uh, what you have available. Because a lot of these youth tournaments now are going into pitching restrictions. So yeah. you're only allowed to throw so many pitches or so many outs or whatever each sanctioning body may be. And everybody's different. So that really makes it tough, tough to to adopt that that adopt that format. Now, personally, I love the two out of three format because I think you get the the best team that wins. The closest we come is what we do at the TBS Nationals, and we're the only one in the country now that does it. Is we do a double elimination format. Mm -hmm. So it's for, not for a true national for a true national championship. Yeah, right. yeah. We, we don't implement that during the weekend tournaments because again, you're talking about a, a small amount of time. You know, basically, you've got Friday night, all day Saturday, and about two-thirds of the day on Sunday to get your tournament in. So using that format is, is very tough. 
uh, and challenging. But for the Nationals, the week-long event, we do use a double elimination format. And, and coaches and teams, they love that because not one bad inning or one bad day or one hot pitcher is going to ruin their whole yeah. week. They still have another shot. The other thing, it's funny, all these things weave together, right? We're talking about social media and content mm-hmm. and um and, and sticky programming that keeps youth baseball players engaged in the college game to certain brands, as, as your position states. I, I am really compelled by the day when we have really high-quality highlights from youth baseball. And, and you've done this at the TBS Nationals where you have a great camera crew who, yeah. who, who live streams and captures your championship games. That particular thing at yeah. scale um, – you know, over time sort of doing this in the youth basketball space at the premier level. I'm, I'm just really compelled that once we have cameras that are quality enough and the right angles for diamond sports, sure, the amount of highlights we're going to see come out of elite youth baseball, there's a heck of a lot more happening out there than even our top 10 will ever show here in a couple of weeks, right? Sure. So, so that's fascinating to me. And that's part of the content of the social ecosystem. But most of the top 10, well, you know, as it stands right now, every top 10 highlight that we're going to have on our show at the end of the month is going to be a, a home video or a phone or or something of that nature. You're not really getting those high resolution shots from the field. It's coming because yeah. oh, I agree it's coming, but most I would say 95 percent of the complexes in the entire country have one basic generic camera behind home plate. Behind home too plate. far to see a diving play. You can't see anything. That's right? changing. So. You know, the, the crew that I bring in for the TBS Nationals, we bring in three different camera angles. We have a camera that follows, you know, the on-ball action at all times during the championship games, but it's not cheap. Yeah. You know, you're talking about moving equipment in, setting up a production for a whole day shoot because we do every age group, and, and it's not cheap. So if you try to implement that on a, on a, on a week-to-week basis, you know, then, then that means you're going to have to start raising the, the entry fees to your tournaments and... And then that's a whole nother animal. You know, the, the teams don't want to pay what they're paying now because they don't realize the cost involved into putting on that production. So um, it's, a, it's a vicious circle. It's, it's one that uh, we fight with all the time, trying to figure out, trying to find that fine balance. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to be lucky enough to televise uh, our broadcast live on, on Facebook Live, the championship game for the TBS Nationals. I'd love, I'd love to do more. Sure. Right. You know, hopefully we'll get there someday. Right. Right. Hopefully we'll get there someday. That sort sort of weaves into this, again, going back to the social conversation. We also think about recruiting in so much as how these young athletes are building their own brands on social media. Becoming their own brand, yeah. Becoming their own brand. And for, for a second, let's just push to the side all these stories we've heard about how they need to appropriately handle themselves on social media and there's this old adage, which I don't quite agree with, but it's worth noting, like, don't post anything that you wouldn't want your grandmother to see. I think the day and age has changed a little bit from a creativity standpoint. You're a huge TikTok fan, I know. So. Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> the, the, point, the point, overall point, of course, is it's a really conscious decision these days that families and kids need to make about how they are going to present themselves in the social ecosystem because coaches are watching that. Right. That, that is oh, a sure. component of the recruiting process on how you are handling yourself in a public environment that is social media. And sure, Snapchat disappears or however the heck that works. But coaches are watching this and it's important to think not just what should I not do to make sure I don't you know, put my foot in the bucket, but what should I do? Because name image likeness at the collegiate level is coming 
And the ability for these student athletes to monetize who they are as a social brand is something that those who are savvy enough to think about this long term really need to hone, hone in on. Well, and they got to realize too, listen, I hear on a weekly basis, if not even more often now that the season's coming, you hear stories about how kids lost scholarships mm-hmm. because of something they said, not yesterday, not six years ago, not but it's still out there. Yesterday, right. Six years ago, right. that when they said it, they were some 12 year old kid yep. that didn't really think, and who at 12 thinks, right? That transpired years and years ago that they probably don't even remember was out there. So I urge, and this is where we're talking about the social media impact on the youth, you know, guys, parents, kids, pay attention to what you're doing. Parents, stay involved, have access to your kids' social media accounts. So if something comes across that you can catch it and it's a red flag. And you can quickly coach. I would even take it a step, you know, step beyond that, Rick. And I have my oldest child is an eight-year-old girl who asks for a phone every day. And of course, she's not getting one, but... I would say beyond simply being aware of what your athlete is posting and how they're handling themselves online, I would encourage parents to take that next step. And that is that, you know, there are some uh, notable third parties out there who can really through asynchronous or synchronous online learning or individual consulting on the personal level of how to effectively communicate who you are as an athlete, a student, a person, on social media, and not just, again, it's not just about what to avoid, it's how to maximize who you are. It's worth the time to take, invest, and, and pay Absolutely. attention to that stuff. Absolutely, 100%. You know, again, folks, I can't stress enough, something you do at 11, 12, 13 years old could, in fact, matter of fact, we just talked, we just talked about, you mentioned a, a kid that came to uh, BY, was 14 and committed to Vanderbilt. Yep. So, that's a whole other topic, 14-year-olds committing to college. But we're going to get to that in just a second. But now that 14-year-old child is going to have to walk the fine line for the next three years. Because Vanderbilt's going to be watching. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, you hear stories that when you verbally commit, Vanderbilt wants access to your social media. Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? We need to know what it is. We're going to start following you. So now that 14-year-old kid, 14-year-old kid can't afford to be a 14-year-old kid in some respects. Of doing things that, my God, if social media was around when I was a kid, holy moly, mm-hmm. I'd be in trouble. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. You know, it's that type of thing. So, um, but brings me to my next point is what's your thoughts of 14-year-old kids verbally committing to college? And the second part to that question, Matt, is what is the validity to that? The reality of it is early recruiting is here to stay unless the NCAA drastically changes the recruiting uh, calendar and cadence. The key, the key word in this whole sequence is a verbal commitment, which means absolutely nothing, right? I don't know that it means absolutely nothing. I think it means a lot, but it is not binding by either party. Uh, We've both heard stories of over recruiting and or a student athlete not developing where they were in their 14 or somewhere else when they're 17 and they're not where that particular program thought they'd be. So the offers rescinded or um, you got to go to into it eyes wide open, but it is reality. Uh, it is how the marketplace works. 
in Noah's case and in, in Vanderbilt's case, uh, the opportunity to go to Vanderbilt to play baseball and get that kind of education, that's, that's pretty hard to pass up whether you're 14 or 17. And you got to live up to it, but it is the reality of what's going on. We got a ticket text that just came in and it's asking, what is the ramifications of somebody committing at 14? Does that mean that other colleges can't talk to him? And, and I don't know the answer. Right. And you'd have to ask a compliance specialist from, you know, an NCAA institution, probably technically speaking, what that means. But until you sign that piece of paper that says that national letter of intent that binds you to an institution, you know, it, it, the verbal is, is strictly a pledge. It's a verbal pledge. It's not a – some coaches out there likely say, kid's verbal, I'm not touching him. We, we know not all kids, all, all coaches. Is it like a promise are. ring? When, when, sure. When you're, Might be. I'm dating myself now because I know there's probably a million people out there going, what the heck is a promise ring? I'm, I'm probably even too young to know that too, Rick. But yes, it sounds sim- somewhat similar. Stop. All right, folks. Um, thanks for the ticket text. I appreciate it. If you guys uh, have any more questions, feel free to text us. The number to text us is 915-228-2785. And uh, we'll get your question on the air if it's pertaining to the topic that we're talking about, just like the, the one that we just got. So... Um, and before you move on, uh, from a TBS national standpoint, have you kept a list of all the kids who have played in TBS nationals and who where they've ended up going to college? Because if you haven't, we need to start keeping that because I'm sure it's a laundry list. We have it, but we haven't followed up with it. I, I know there's a lot of players out there that have played in the TBS nationals sure. that I know of just off the top of my head. I recognize the names, but I'm, I'm sure there's there's many of them. I have rosters. I have the rosters from. We've been doing it for 10 years. I probably have the rosters for the last seven or eight for sure yeah. that I could go back and, and follow through. And, and uh, you know. I don't think I'm exaggerating here. You've been doing it for how many years? 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. An average of, I mean, there are hundreds, hundreds of kids who have played TBS Nationals who are playing not just college baseball, but Division One college baseball. I'm sure. Right yeah. Some of the kids I've coached, I know they're playing Division One. There's some in the minors. Um, having success right now, and uh, uh, that I've had the fortunate luck yeah. to, to to coach and, and to, and I'm not going to name drop or anything here, but right, there's right. there's some big time names that that I've had, I've had the honor of of coaching. It speaks to the level of competition at, at yeah. the Nationals for sure. So I think it's an interesting project for us. Yeah, you know what? That's something that maybe I I will dive into. I just you know you go back now seven eight years and you see John Smith. Well, I mean that you know some names are common. Um, and there's some dudes at 12, 13. Yeah, he's 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 gonna be something. Well, I, there is. Uh, we used to do, and and we might get back into this, and and I probably put myself in a corner for saying this, but we used to do all America teams mm-hmm. from from way back in the day, even before I started running the tournaments. And our 12U All American Player of the Year back in uh, man, I want to say like early 2000s. Uh, was a name that you might recognize, but we had, when he was 12, we named him Player of the Year, Bryce Harper. Never heard of him. No, not, not too many people have. No. And uh, the one nice thing about it is for years after he, he made it to, and it's not there because I looked, but on his uh, Wikipedia page, it actually referenced <laughs> that he was a 12U TBS When you've made Player it on Wikipedia, year. you're really famous <laughs> now, man. So that was our fa- fame to claim, or claim to fame for, for quite some time. Um, but speaking of, of Bryce Harper and uh, our next topic is, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the D1 programs around, around the country. 
But there is so many other options out there besides D1. Sure. You know, and I, I urge the, the parents and even the kids, don't get hung up on, on D1 because there's some big-time names that never played D1 baseball. Bryce Harper, we just mentioned, is one of them. But uh, you've got some other ones that, that didn't step foot on the D1 field. And, and we said earlier, it's all about the individual situation, right? So it, it's so hard to say what should a kid do because their particular circumstance really matters and has to be taken into consideration and, and, um, and is part of their journey. There's this guy who plays for the Los Angeles Angels. He's hit a few home runs. He's been around for a long time. If he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer, I don't know who is. Albert Pujols never stepped on a Division One baseball field. Well, because some people don't know how old he is. Maybe that's that's why. Whether he's 51 or 41 or 44. See, that's what I said. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the guy is a Hall of Famer. It doesn't matter. Period. He plays the game. Period. Right. And he plays the game the right way, in my opinion. He does. Uh, in fact, you know, this is sort of fascinating, too. There, there's two historic closers, relief pitchers, who played at the D3 level. Joe Nathan, longtime Twins closer. Yeah. Billy Wagner, flame-throwing left-hander for the Astros. Both played D3 ball. Nathan at Stony Brook on Long Island. When it was D3, it's now D1. But when Joe was there, it's D3. And Billy Wagner played at Ferrum College, which is in Virginia. Little Ferrum College. Ferrum College. Yeah, little D3. I can honestly say I didn't know that fact. And two, I've never heard of Ferrum College. Now you have, and now you know the fact. And the point, again, is we could look through the rosters of the Dodgers and Rays last year in the the, uh, World Series. There's a couple of D2 and D3 guys on those rosters. It's all about the individual situation where you're going to get the most quality instruction from a coaching standpoint, where you can develop the best, where you're going to get a sound education. So it's all about the individual situation. You know, the numbers are pretty simple. Even at the D1 level, and there's what, like 10,000 Division One players per year, a very small percentage of them are even going to have a professional baseball opportunity, much less make the major leagues. Yeah. Very, a very small percentage are even going to have the opportunity so you've got to think holistically about where you're going to play college baseball. And it is not always about playing D1 ball. You can develop great relationships with your teammates and coaches at every level. And um, quality education can be found beyond D1s as well. Matt, we've got a, got a ticket text question here. About Why are we this. calling this the ticket text? What is the ticket? Uh, you know, it's just got a good ring to it? it? It's got a good T- ring to it. Text. Okay, I'll go with it. Ticket text. Okay. Sounds better than just a text. Yeah. I've got a text. I thought you might call it like a TikTok text or something with Oh, here we go with the TikTok. Okay, ticket text. Anyway, go with the ticket, ticket text. text. Anyway, this uh, texter wants to know, does JUCO teams ever play D1 college teams? You know, back in the day, I think there was some fall ball played between D1s and JUCOs, especially in the South. I don't know that I've seen that in years, and I'm, I'm just trying to think. Recently, the NCAA allowed D1s to play a couple of uh, countable games in the fall. You know, but I don't recall. So is it, is it NCAA regulation? I think that's part it? of it because there's, I mean, man, there's just reams of talent at the JUCO level. So JUCO is not governed by NCAA. JUCO is is governed by a couple different governing bodies. Uh, the NJCAA being one that has, I don't know, eighty percent of JUCOs out there. California and kind of some West Coast regions have their own junior college governing bodies, but the, the majority are the NJCAA, which is out of. Well, Overland Park, Kansas. I well, think. let me take this this question then a step further. Then, what about D one to D two or NIAI or anything like that? Yeah, same thing. I think it's I think it's the same thing. And and JUCOs can simply just play more baseball. Like they play a good fall schedule and they can play you know a lot more than fifty six games in the spring in some cases. 
Juco ball is a great route for a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of quality baseball players who have come out of the Juco route. And, and let's be honest, again, talking about those individualized situations, for some guys, going to Vanderbilt is not the right solution because they're not going to be able to hang academically, right? Sure. And they need to start out and get their feet under them from a Juco standpoint. As we know, you can get drafted quicker out of a junior college. Than and you can transfer too, and right? You can, transfer. you can transfer. There's optionality. Let's use that word. There's yeah. optionality from Juco more so. Listen, when I was coaching – and this is years and years ago, I told all my players as they got older, I said, if somebody's going to keep paying you sure. to play the game, keep playing the game as long as you can. And, and I think back to a quote from Moneyball, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, that eventually you're going to get told that you can't play this game any longer. It's different for everybody, but we're all going to get told. So you might as well play it and take advantage of it while you can, whether it's at a D1, D2, NAIA, JUCO. If somebody's willing to give you some type of scholarship money to play the game, man, just just do it and enjoy it. Which means you're also getting a subsidized education to some degree. Correct. Collegiate education. Right. You're, you're getting Higher something education. of that nature. Um, you know, my, my son's 26 years old now, and he played elite-level travel ball since the time he was nine years old. Fast forward to high school, and when I say fast forward, parents, I am not exaggerating. Your time at the youth baseball level is going to go extremely fast. High school is going to go fast, and then you've got some decisions to make. And my son let his ego kind of get in his way, and if he wasn't playing D1, he wasn't going to play baseball. Mm -hmm. And he had some offers from some schools up in Michigan to play baseball and to get an education, and he declined. He ended up going to Michigan State to work on an engineering degree, which he didn't finish, unfortunately. Um, but my point being is you can pick up the phone right now and I could call my son and ask him about his decision not to play college baseball, and he will tell you that he regrets it. Yeah. Because he can't play now. He's 26. He can't play. And in, in, in my college baseball experience – at UNC Asheville, a small little D1 school in the mountains of North Carolina, uh, is, is something I wouldn't trade for virtually virtually anything. I mean, the, the relationships that were built between teammates and the competition level we faced and, and pushing yourself to see can you hang, invaluable. And learning how to multitask as a student athlete when you got taking 17 hours and you're on the road traveling a couple times per week for, for playing baseball, those are the type of life lessons that are really developed, learned and developed at the collegiate level. Did you play travel ball when you were younger? So again, long time ago, and this would have been late 90s, travel ball in the AAU scene then was just really starting to get moving. Oh, so boy. I can remember playing it in Disney the summer of 2000, and this was just like, and we had a group of guys from here. It was here, AAU back then. That was AAU. Yeah, um, yeah. We had Chet a group Lemon. of guys from here in, here in Louisville and around Kentucky, you know, probably – Eight to ten D1 guys. We had a really good team. How old? This is when I would have been 17, 18. Okay. So before we were going to college. What about younger? What about, what was your experiences at 9, 10, 11? Oh, Little League. All Little League. All Little League, man. Which is local, right? You guys didn't travel nowhere. Maybe a town over The Little League where I grew up here in Louisville is no longer in existence. I mean, it's out of, you know, it doesn't even operate anymore. There's a couple here in town, but the one where I grew up is is no longer. You think now to these youth players, and they start playing, and and I just saw a picture uh, on one of our social media pages where a five-year-old team, five-year-old, five, five, year old, 
five-year-old team won a tournament this past weekend. What, what kind of what kind of tournament does a five-year-old team win? They it's uh, a t-ball tournament. Interesting. A t-ball tournament, and they had rings. They they won rings. So my my concern or my question is if they start playing that type of, of baseball where they're they're competing for rings and stuff of that nature at five years old. A major league baseball player's longevity career lasts, and I'm just guessing here. I'm spitballing seven to ten years. If you're if you're good, you'll sure. stick around the majors for seven to ten years. So you're talking about if a kid starts playing at five years old, by the time he gets to high school, he's 17. He's already played 12 years of baseball. Then another four years of college. Now he's at 16 years of baseball. And at what point do you just go? I'm done. I got to check out. You know, I don't want to play no more. Sure. For some people, that's a real thing, right? And so... So your passion was still there because you started later. I was a multi-sport kid, though, too. I well, played a ton of That's another topic. Yeah, it is. And, I, you know, we don't want to go... And for the record, I believe in multi-sport kids. Yeah, I think we, we all are advocates of that. But the Little League experience, competitively, and we played at a wonderful Little League that went to the state multiple times or one state a couple times and all that, all that jazz. I don't know that it was too dissimilar from a... Um, the seriousness in the approach of wanting to get better and wanting to win, but the competition was at the little league level, maybe not as as acute as it is now at the travel ball level, where you really have to join a team. You know, once you're whatever eight, nine, ten, yeah, five seems a little early to me. But um, playing sound competition regularly is going to make you better. But do do you think there's a? I mean. Is there that big of a difference? So back back in my day when I when I played baseball, I played youth baseball, and we made all stars. And a big deal for us was to travel the next town over oh, to yeah. play the other town, right? Now it's just scalable because now you're you're building these youth teams to go play in the next state over or two states over. Doesn't really mean your experience is any different because you're playing an unfamiliar foe. Right, you get tired of playing everybody in your hometown, so you do this. You go play an unfamiliar foe. Sure. And the experience is the same whether I'm playing the team that's a town over that I've never seen, or I play somebody from another state. One of the things I get to TBS Nationals all the time is from these teams, like, well, I want to play teams from other states, and and sometimes I just have to sit back and grasp that statement. Because that was never even something that was... Yeah, the town over is now the state over. Now the state over. That's the measure of of competition. That's the measure of competition. And and now you take it a step further when you become these college kids, you know, or going into college from the youth level into high school into college. They want to play those teams that play the the better competition as they they get older. Right. Um, You know, just worry about burnout. I'm sure sure it happens. And for event producers like us and our family of companies here at Athletic Sports Group, there's elements of of the events that we build in a certain fashion to to sort of, at times, take attention away from the play on the field and ensure that families are having a wonderful time in that particular venue, in that marketplace. It's an experience. Absolutely. An experience. And and to me, when you have that experience, it kind of takes away from the grind of the actual tournament itself. You you, you remember that word? Fun? Fun. Remember that word? Yeah. Yeah. Winning is fun. Winning is fun. Experiencing life with your friends and family is fun. So there's different components here of that journey for youth baseball players. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And and it's important. Um, 
you know, it, it's, uh, it's a tough topic. You it's know, an ever-evolving topic. It's an ever-evolving topic. Ever -evolving that, topic. That's, a, that's a good way to, to put it. Um, let's go on to our last one and for the evening. And then that's kind of preparing for the, the college yeah, and the college experience. And we've talked we've talked about this we've particular topic from a couple different angles. The, the yeah. one last thing that I feel compelled to talk about in a little further detail is it sort of goes along with this travel baseball mentality and and there's so much data out there these days right mm -hmm. and, and when you get into the high school level or the elite travel ball level you know spin rates exit velos all this stuff is indicative of performance to college coaches and, and absolutely matters but here's what else matters can you throw a strike can you set up a batter with a pitch sequence here how about this one too how about this one too rick What's your body language with your teammates? Well, that's a huge one. What's your body language when your coach gets on? You look your coach in the eye? Yeah, that's, that's a huge How one. How do you treat your parents when you come off the field and you were over four with two Ks and you made an error at short? Yeah. If you think college coaches aren't watching that, you are wrong. I, you know, in my time when I was up in Michigan, I, I become pretty close with some, some college coaches up there right when my son was going through the process from high school and, and, uh, they knew my my passion and my desire, not just only for my son, but for the sport in general. So they shared a lot of information with me, and, and I heard from a lot of coaches. They show up to pre -game. a game. They show up to a game pre-game. Yeah. Yep. They never stick around for the game. Yep. And so this message is for all the youth parents out there that have your kids coming up at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I'm just warning you right now. You're not doing them any favors by carrying their ball bags to and from the dugout between each games. And, and I hear it all the time because in my tournaments, I'm on site 24-7. I don't leave. So I see it all. I hear it all. And I hear all the excuses that mom and dad makes for their kid. Well, he's tired. Well, he slid into second base and he, and he turned his ankle. And I'm thinking to myself, well, did he turn it or did he break it? Because if he didn't break it. Got that old school in you. I, I do. I got that old school in me. And, and I just don't understand. Your, your, your point's well taken. Yeah, your because, point's well taken. again, I got a little sidetracked because I'm trying to relate this to the youth audience that, that I have out there. But it's important they realize that this is what they got to do. Because here's what's going to happen, Matt. Those, I told you, those college scouts or, or those college coaches, they come and they don't even stay for the game because if they see mom or dad carrying up the bag or carrying up the Gatorade for little Timmy, they just turn and leave. And maybe, they, maybe if it's a first-round you know, talent, they might see, uh, they see that. <laughs> see, now we're back to making excuses. Nah, I, I feel you. The, now we're back to making excuses. The, the way you act at 14 or the habits you built at 11, right? I mean, so, so, so building those habits early on, the measurables matter. The measurables absolutely matter these days, but so too do those intangibles that coaches are watching. Yeah, and, and they're little things. Mm -hmm. They're little things that, I'm, listen, I get mom, you know, feeling for his son, you know, or her son. He's had a rough day, you know, he struck out or whatever, and he, she just wants to help, right? It's the natural instinct to, to nurture your child and to be there for them. But... You're not doing them any favors, and it's hard, right? It's it's hard, and that's that the old school into me. Let them figure it out for themselves. 
And listen, everybody is a great teammate and a great person to be around when you're winning or you've mm-hmm. had success. But like you said earlier, the key is you went over three today and struck out three times and you left that runner at third there every time. And we lost by one run. Yeah. How do you respond? Yeah. And, and you have to move on because I guarantee you it's not the last time you're going to do it. And clearly you just did it. So it's not the first time you've done, you've done sure. it. And, you know, that's what these guys have to understand. Um, Moneyball. You mentioned Moneyball earlier. And we're such in a revolution of data. Moneyball is all about taking advantage of suboptimal opportunities in the marketplace, right? So Billy Bean was all about, I need guys who, on base percentage was Billy Bean's thing, right? right. Whether it's through walk I don't or care. whatever. You're, You're on, on base. base. And so I, I think we are in a, in a data-driven uh, environment now in youth baseball. Intangibles are still vitally important, and eventually we're going to see maybe that come around again. But both the, the point of the matter is, you want to play college baseball, you got to do both really well, period. Well, let, let's relate one more thing from the youth baseball into the college world, and that's once you start, once you get out of what I consider the youth, and that's anything above 13, you know, now you're getting into these, what they call showcase teams. And these showcase teams are strictly for colleges. I mean, let's face it. Sure. You're not showcasing for your high school team. You go to high school where you live. Or if your school of choice, you, you're going to a, a, a private school. But the mindset is different on these showcase teams than when you're 9, 10, 11, and 12. When you're 9, 10, 11, and 12, and 13, it's all about your teammates and, and you're this and you're that. But when you go to these college showcase teams, and let's face it, the rosters are different every week, it's all about me. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know if the intangibles are any different. How, how, how quickly do you get on and off the field? How happy are you for somebody else when something goes good for them when it is still a showcase team? Like that, that's still something I'm watching, right? Can you sure. get excited for somebody else? Be a good teammate. Yeah, but in the individualized environment, when you can be a good teammate, and, and, and by the way, here's a little, you know, getting into the weeds though. It's not just about being a rah-rah guy. Is it genuine? Sure. It's you know, a genuine. Is it genuine? I think it's an interesting. It's and I'm going to tell you with my experiences with is with coaching and seeing the kids, you can tell who's genuine and who's not. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, and for the record, all my teams, you talked about how fast you can get off the field. All my teams had seven seconds to get on and off the field. And, you know, it's little things that I, I start and I started teaching that at 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, at 12 years old, the fields are smaller. Right? Five seconds. So, right. They, they were comfortable with it. So, as we progressed and got to the bigger fields, I had one of my players come to me one day and says, Coach, are we going to get more than seven seconds? Now these fields are bigger. Yeah. And, and I shake my head and I go, no. Right. You know? Right. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's a standard. It's a standard. So, um, you know, it's the little things that you do that goes a long way, not only just in baseball, but just in life general. Sure. You know? Sure. And so, you know, that's important for all you young players that are coming up. Uh, learning how to do things the right way. And, and you want to get on a Vanderbilt's radar or just, you know, we'll stop talking about Vanderbilt. Just get on the D1 radar, right? Everybody knows this. I'm just going to reemphasize it again. Every college coach has a list of players. Everybody gets on that list. It's staying on that list mm-hmm. is the trick and is the hard part because they look for reasons to cross you off that list. And I got news for you. You know this as well as I do. Once you get crossed off a list, it's hard to get back on. It's easy to come off. So doing the little things like carrying your own bag, tying your shoes, having your shirt tucked in, having your hat on the right way when you get to the field. Again, all little things that will get you off that list. And you might as well forget it. You're not getting back on it. Because like you said, 
There's only so many spots on a college roster. And what is it, 30, 35? Is, is it 35? Yeah, I mean, right, right now we're going through a different time because of COVID. Because of COVID, right. right. So they've got 100 names to fill that 35, 35 spots or whatever the case may be. So they need reasons to get rid of you. Yeah, all good points. Don't, don't give them the reasons. Yeah. Well, Matt, anything else we want to talk or go over? No, I'm excited for the next time we get together. More ticker texts. We need to get more ticker texts. Ticket texts. T- ticket texts. Ticket texts. Ticket texts. Excuse me. Get some ticket texts. No, enjoy the combo, Rick. Thank you for having me. Man, it's, I tell you what, I can't believe I looked down. It's already been an hour, and it feels like we've only been here five minutes. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I want to thank Matt Roberts for joining us tonight. And uh, tune in next week. We'll be here Monday night, every Monday night during the baseball season at 7 p.m. And we'll, we'll – uh, talk about next week we're going to have Allison from right here locally and we're going to be talking about girls softball on the show next week as as it compares to boys baseball the differences and the similarities from that so I'm looking forward to that show but for now I'm Rick Goff uh, from the Athletic Sports Group Studios here in Louisville Kentucky and on behalf of Matt Roberts I want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight have a good night